Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. This is week number four. For the uninitiated, we are walking through chapters five through seven. Currently, we're going to finish today 12 verses in. It's taken us four weeks to get in 12 verses. So you start doing math. It might be a while. Um, We're going to break it up along the way. So we'll have a Christmas series and we'll do some things next year. And so we'll get through this. We're going to take our time. No reason to rush. Jesus is kind of largest contiguous teaching is right here. And so we don't want to rush it. We want to really soak in it. And um, today we're going to soak in persecution, which doesn't sound like the most fun thing on earth, but here we go. So I'm going to just read it and then we'll get into it. Matthew 5, uh, we're in verse 10. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What we've said in the past around this, uh, these beatitudes, as they're called, the blessed ours, and we've said these are the marks, in a sense. These are the birthmarks of a believer. That there's certain things, that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're in the kingdom of heaven, these certain things will be true of you. And like previous weeks, we recognize, uh, looking at blessed are those who are persecuted, this is not something we reverse engineer. And so if you had the idea already that as soon as you leave church, you're going to get on Facebook and comment really controversial things on everybody you know's timelines for persecution's sake, that's a bad idea. Like, don't do that. What we want to do is actually consider what it is that leads to persecution, and maybe we're going to reverse engineer that and say, what's the opposite? What's the inverse of that? Persecution comes as a function of a kingdom life lived out. It looks different in every context, in every generation. It's gonna look different in 2023 than it did in the first generations following the death of Christ. It's gonna look different for um, you in a small town than it would be in a large city. It's gonna look different for you depending on your socioeconomic context. It could look different depending on all sorts of things. If you grew up in a Christian home versus none of your family follow Jesus, it'll look different. And so there is no one-size-fits-all persecution that we should be expecting. What we should expect is if you live out the kingdom life in the way that Jesus lays out, that something about the world is not going to be pleased with that. We should expect this, though. This shouldn't be a surprise, and it shouldn't be something that we're, like, fearful of. Because if we have different goals, if we believe in the Bible, then the Bible would say that we're literally inhabiting a different kingdom. If we believe that, then we should expect that abiding by different laws and different values might leave us at a different sort of place with our culture. To uh, explain this, there's a place between Austin and San Antonio in Texas where um, the, the speed limit is literally 85 miles an hour. Everything's bigger in Texas. The map on the right, you can see there's all, these just represents all the different speed limits that are in the United States. So depending on where you are in the United States, the maximum speed limit is it's 85 or it's 75 or in some places it's 65. And, and it creates this mishmash of rules that don't apply uniformly anywhere. If you've ever driven to the airport in Detroit, 
you have to go 65 until you hit this magical imaginary line on I-75, whereas the speed limit goes up. As soon as you enter Michigan, the speed limit goes up. Or in reverse, the great fear is you get really used to driving nice and fast in Michigan, and as soon as you hit the Ohio State line, the speed limit drops, and there's a highway patrol officer waiting there for you. Hadn't happened to me yet, but eventually it'll happen. What does this mean? It means that when you cross into different jurisdictions, the rules are different. And you can't expect to drive 85 on State Route 25 without expecting some consequences. And yet we often would look at the way we behave in the world or the way that the world's rules apply or living in different kingdoms. We look at different jurisdictions. And as a follower of Christ, you live in a different jurisdiction than somebody who doesn't follow Jesus. And and we can't expect that the rules will be the same or that we should match up to their expectations of our behavior. It's different. We should expect that we wouldn't fit in perfectly. Like maybe we drive too fast or maybe we drive too slow for the larger world around us in the metaphor. What we would expect then is that people might roll their eyes. Let's say we obey Ohio's speed limits in Texas. What will other drivers do? You will get some unfortunate behavior, won't you? Do it in the fast lane, you might get shot. Like it just is the way, welcome to 2023. This is the way the world works. You go too slow in the fast lane and it is like federal offense. People roll their eyes, they'll sneer. You could be in real trouble. At times as a believer and follower of Jesus, What I'm trying to say is sometimes you will get the world rolling their eyes or sneering or even creating some trouble for you because of the way you behave and live your life by kingdom values and laws. And that might be some evidence that you're doing it right. Our internal desire is not to be out of step with those around us. Our internal, something in us desires to be approved by the people around us, to be in step with them. And so when we're out of step with the larger culture, something in us, until we mature fully in Jesus, something in us is always going, I wish they didn't think we were that way. For the uninitiated, this brings us to one of my favorite topics. Some of you have not uh, experienced this yet, but we have an unofficial mascot here at Covenant Church. It's a steelhead trout. This is the unofficial mascot of Covenant Church. One day we'll print t-shirts and it'll just have a trout on it. I'm going to hang it on this little thing. There we go. Sit there, buddy. Um, We love the steelhead trout. It's born in the rivers of the northwest of the United States. It's born as a rainbow trout. This is actually uh, one of the more miraculous things that happens in nature. Born as a rainbow trout, some small percentage of these beautiful creatures actually do something different than the rest. Maybe two or three percent of all rainbow trout decide they want to do something different. They, instead of staying in the streams of the bucolic Pacific Northwest and the pine trees and the plentiful food, they decide like just total fools, these two to three percent, to swim out to the open ocean, live in the Pacific for two to three years, and then make their way back upstream where they will encounter all the normal uh, predators that are there so they can spawn in the place of their birth. Some people are like, I've heard of this story, but I saw it in a nature documentary, and it's about the heroic salmon. We love the heroic salmon in our country. Look at the salmon. Look at them. They're so heroic. What brave, valiant souls as they swim up waterfalls and dodge bears, and they're just incredible, and they do it every year. They all do it. What an incredible species, we think. 
So much we loved the salmon that when we started building dams, we started building this, uh, see that white strip on the right? We talked about this. We built something called a salmon cannon, which is literally a pneumatic tube that they funnel all the fish into, and the cannon takes the fish and it shoots it upriver over the dam into the next section of river. It is a salmon cannon. They are up to a quarter mile long. Have you ever been to the drive-through pharmacy or the bank? Remember when we had banks? And, and you put that tube into the other tube and you hit the button and it went, whoop. that's what this is. And these salmon, they swim and they, there's like a little catchment and then it grabs the salmon, whoop, and it just sends them upstream. That's how much we love the salmon. Steelhead trout do it. No one refers to them as heroic. No one outside of Covenant Church even knows who they are. We'll make them famous one day. It's a difficult journey to be a steelhead trout. The upstream life is much harder than the mainstream life of the rainbow trout they leave behind. The mainstream rainbow trout just swim around all day. The steelhead go out to the ocean and then live the upstream life, adding trouble upon trouble upon trouble. It's dangerous. They get no glory for it. Why do 2 to 3% of all rainbow trout leave the mainstream for the difficult upstream life? They were born for it. They're compelled to do it. Why do you, maybe some 2 to 3% of American citizens, of residents of this country, why do you choose to swim the upstream life against the grain of culture, against the grain of the mainstream, why do you choose it? Because it was chosen for you, because you were born to do it. You were born again to do it. You're compelled to live the Christian life. You're compelled to swim against the grain because it's something in you says it's the right way. It's what I was made for. It doesn't make it easier. It doesn't mean that you should expect it to be the same as if you were just living the mainstream life. It should be different. It should be harder. And the scripture is explaining it should be harder. You should expect it to be a challenge to live the upstream life. But we don't do it for the applause of the culture. The steelhead don't do it for the reason the salmon do it. The salmon, they're a little selfish. The salmon do it because the world loves the salmon. The salmon do it because in the Seattle market, they're throwing salmon around and everybody loves salmon. You go to Kroger right now, there's a big, there's like five different cases for salmon. One little case for steelhead. Guess who's buying that? That's right. You can support the steelhead. But they don't get the applause the salmon get. The same way that no one is giving you applause for living your life by these strange, arcane, ancient truths. No one's giving you applause for that. In here, you get a pat on the back and a, ooh, that was tough. But out in your neighborhood, people go, oh, Christians. This sounds to me like the first believers. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, pretty famous passage of the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They praised God and enjoyed the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily to those who were being saved. 
we have this perfect picture of what the early church was like, but what, what it doesn't say and what it gets into later in the book of Acts, what you start to see as you read the historical documents around it, is these, these were upstream people. These were not normal behaviors. They kept it up. They were gathering the sick and the lame from the streets. In the early days in the Roman provinces, when you had a sick person in your home, you threw them out of your home, lest you get it too. In the days before easy antibiotics, what did you do when someone was sick? You got rid of them so no one else got sick. When someone was deathly ill, you left them in the gutter. You threw them out in the street. If someone was born paralyzed or deformed or in un- any other way lesser than, you got rid of them because they were a drag on the household. They didn't contribute. They couldn't do what everyone else can do. And you would take this person, the crippled and the lame, and you would leave them out on the sidewalk and go, fend for yourself. This was normal. This was mainstream behavior. Christians lived an upstream life where Christians would go out into the streets and they would bring these people in. And the rest of the culture went, what are you doing? They're just a drain on you. And Christians went, "Mm mm-hmm, thank you. We'll take them. No one applauded. No one gave them high fives. No one wrote articles about them. No one thought they were incredible. People just went, that's puzzling behavior. But this was the mark of the believers. This is the birthmark. The the marks of the person who loves Jesus is the person who loves Jesus' people. The culture didn't have to understand it. In Acts 11, the the Bible says that's when they were first called Christians. They they had to come up with a new term because they couldn't figure out what to do with these people who were doing these strange, puzzling things, who were living this other upstream way. So they said, I guess we'll call them something new because they're not like the Jews from which they came and they're not like these Gentiles. they're, They're something new. They're, I guess, Christians. People of the Christ. They got indifference or befuddlement, probably like you would get from your neighbors. Eventually, the first believers were persecuted, reviled. And if you read the great book of martyrs, you'll see over and over they were killed. Because eventually it started making the people uncomfortable. This is too different, it's too upstream. Jesus says that means you are clearly blessed. You're profoundly soul-level satisfied. Blessed are you when the culture looks at you and goes, what and why? Because you're clearly not in the kingdom of the world. You've clearly taken your citizenship from the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of heaven, and as a result, you're living by different laws, you have a different jurisdiction, and you will behave differently. You've been transformed into a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. When you look at Eugene Peterson's translation, his paraphrase of Matthew 5, this beautiful part, I want to just, we'll read it together so you can see. Here's how he says it. He says, you're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort. They're uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens, give a cheer even, for though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds and know that you're in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. I love that. That is the picture of what what we're going to experience as we live the upstream life. There are times when our values, the times that our truths, as we live out the truth of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, there are times when that will make other people around us a little uncomfortable, too close for comfort. Don't like that. Jesus says, that's how you know you're doing it right. And all heaven applauds, he says. 
I like that. Let's talk about applause. Have you ever been to a sporting event and they have the uh, crowd manipulation tactics happening? And it says, make some noise with a fake decibel meter. One day I want everybody to just be quiet and watch as the thing keeps going up and then it like fake explodes and everybody goes, we did it. But this is, you know, now they have an actual decibel meter. So this is some hockey game in Carolina. And, and they like manipulate people into being louder. Hence the screen that says louder. And, and the idea is you want to break some sort of record of decibels and hurt everybody's permanent hearing. This is what we do. Kansas City uh, and Seattle, I did a little bit of research, too much probably to be honest, on how this all works. In Kansas City and Seattle, the two football stadiums are going back and forth on breaking records of which can be the loudest stadium. And it's like standing next to an, an Air Force jet as it takes off. These are the comparative levels. And they're like, yeah, if you sustain that for a few minutes, it should be like a warning to go to a football game. Anyway, my point is, you've seen this before. This is not new to you. Crowd manipulation tactics are everybody get louder, make some noise. What we're doing is generating applause from kind of uh, artificial means. We just want applause, more applause. We want more energy, more... I've been to games where your team is losing by a lot and they do the applause meter and you're like, this is not the right time for that. But they do it anyway. They gin up the atmosphere. This is what it's like. This is what it is to go to a sporting event. It's also what the world is like in so many ways. In so many ways, we live in, in a stadium of the world and there are certain things, certain ways, certain beliefs, certain values. There are certain things that create that applause meter, that get the applause meter going, that raise the decibels. And the world will applaud you for certain beliefs. The world will applaud you for certain stances you'll take, whether they make sense or not. This has been revealed in our modern culture more than anything. Cancel culture reveals this for us. I'm not going to go on a weird cancel culture rant, but cancel culture is helpful because what it says is if you do the things the way we want you to do them or you say the things we want you to say, we will applaud mass culture. If you say things that offend that, undermine that, or counter that, then you will get the opposite of applause. You will literally just get excluded from the community of humans. And these are the kind of the two bounds we live in right now. What this does is it reveals in us that there's a real applause of the world being offered if you just get in line. It doesn't have to be right. It doesn't have to make any sense. With people all over this country that are really marching and protesting and chanting and waving flags of the Palestinians. I have no problem with Palestinian human beings. But they're saying that what Hamas did in Israel is somehow okay. That, that mass terrorism on innocent civilians, that beheading women and children, that stealing babies and taking hostages, that this is all part of the resistance. And we have thousands of people across our country that are saying this is a good idea. And the world, aka the world of social media and the bubble that they're involved in, is applauding them and they do it more. It's insanity. But there's a built-in applause meter in them, and so if they do more of it, even if they don't understand it, it seems to tick a box and they keep moving. The great irony of, of the movement of the people that are cheering for the government that has perpetuated atrocities in Israel is the same people are uh, anti-racist and the same people are uh, pro uh, anti-homophobia, all the things in the kind of the progressive ideologies that the same people will march for are actually opposed by Hamas and the people of Palestine. And so none of it makes any logical sense, but the, the world doesn't have to make logical sense for us. Because if the applause meter goes up, then we're just kind of like, okay, I guess I'll keep clapping. And so much of our world is organized in where do I get my applause? I feel bad for our teenagers. Being a teenager today is impossible. When I was a, a teenager, 
You would get bullied for like kind of dumb, superficial things. I mean, some of you are going to nod your heads and remember this. If you like the wrong band, you're like, oh, well, you should like this other band. Or if you wore the wrong jeans, you know, like, oh, those are not the cool jeans anymore. You have to buy these other jeans. Somehow for like multiple years, teenagers across America dressed like carpenters. You remember this? We all wore carpenter jeans. No one ever used that little loop, but you had to do it. Yeah, fashion is dumb. We used to get bullied for dumb, superficial things that didn't feel great, but then you would just feel the pressure and you'd pretend to say that Nirvana was better than Pearl Jam. You knew it wasn't true, but you'd be like, I guess, whatever. Some of you are going to send me emails about that. And then you would buy the better jeans or you'd get the different shirt. Today, for quietly believing that God's design on sex and gender is good or that our culture is somehow off, kids get pressured at the level of their core identity. They get pressured on their core beliefs, pressure to drop convictions, submit to culture, pressure to adopt new worldviews, change the very essence of who they are and what they believe and how they understand the world and themselves. Can't believe that. I pray for the upcoming generations because the way things are changing and the way that the applause of the world is getting louder is it's pretty disheartening at times. But applause is a powerful motivator. It's what we do with our children. It's how we raise them. When they do something good, we praise them. When they do something bad, we scold them. There's nothing wrong with that. But as we grow up and, and the loyalties and allegiances of our hearts move from our parents or our loved ones to a larger world and a larger culture, it only makes sense that we would continue to seek applause. I would say that applause these days needs to be reserved for mainstream people. That as upstream people, we have to withhold our desire for applause. We have to withhold our, our need for applause from this world because you're not going to get it. For upstream people, what becomes essential is knowing where our applause comes from. So we put that scripture back up, the uh, Eugene Peterson version of, of the scripture. And what does it say of four lines from the top? And all, four from the bottom, and all heaven applauds. And this is when the heaven will rejoice and there will be overwhelming rejoice, and your reward is great in heaven. And the message says, all heaven applauds. This idea is there's a reservation of applause waiting for you in heaven, that there's, there is a company of angels, there is a collection of saints, there is a trinity that is cheering you on. And so the response of a lost and broken world to the kingdom life shouldn't break you. Rather, it should reinforce that the life you're living is the right life. It should encourage you when, you when you're met with silence by the world around you. Remind you that the, your life only makes sense in the context of the kingdom that you live in. And you should understand that if people live in a different context, in a different kingdom, they may not get your behaviors. And if you get persecution and pushback, it's likely too close for comfort. The way that you're living is maybe too close for comfort. That your kingdom of heaven behavior undermines someone else's kingdom of world belief structure. And the result will be persecution. And sometimes it'll be obvious and sometimes it won't be. Sometimes it'll hurt and sometimes you won't even feel it. Sometimes it'll be apathy and sometimes it'll actually be antagonism. Sometimes it'll just be people lashing out with their misplaced guilt and shame. Because in a world full of hurt and pain, it can be hard to see someone else claiming healing in an unseen force. It's confusing. 
In a world of relativism and confusion, it can be hard to see someone claiming ultimate truth. In a world stripped of meaning and fraught with trial, it can be hard to see someone with purpose and joy. So the world is skeptical. And we need to say that that's okay. The world is skeptical of the beliefs we hold and the kingdom we live in, and we should say that's okay. A lot of us were skeptical too once, weren't we? A lot of us lived in a world where we, we too were skeptical of this Jesus thing. We too were skeptical of this Holy Spirit power. We too were skeptical that this could really transform my life. And then Jesus crashed in and everything changed. And the Holy Spirit testifies to the truth within you. But I can't expect somebody who isn't in this kingdom, who doesn't live in this jurisdiction, I can't expect them to get it. But I also can't live my life so that they might approve. Because they can't get it. We don't exist for the world to cheer for us. We exist that we might eventually get to the applause of heaven. From the seed of creation, from the residency of the creator, that whisper grows as you grow in your faith. That whisper grows as you grow in your conviction. That whisper grows as you live your days for him. It's the whisper of applause. It's the Holy Spirit affirmation. You're doing it. You're not wrong. Grace and mercy win. Love your enemies. Keep going. Don't give up. The, the whisper of heaven continues within you and the drumbeat gets louder that I'm doing the right thing the right way. And even though the world won't get it, it doesn't make it wrong. When I went away to college, uh, I remember all the important mail, back when people got mail, all the important mail went to my parents' house. I, I lived at 101 East 21st Street in Austin, Texas on the eighth floor of whatever dorm room I had. But anything important, bills or statements or all the things that you would get, that stuff went to my permanent address. Because I was going to be there for a year, but then I'd be in a different dorm or I'd move to an apartment and then another apartment. And then eventually, you knew in college, I knew I was going to hopscotch around from places to live. And so what did I do? I kept a permanent address for the important stuff. Medical stuff, you put, here's your address, but here's my permanent address. And you and I need to look at the way we live in this world is we have temporary addresses here that we permanently reside in the kingdom of heaven and our permanent address is with God in heaven. And as heaven crashes down, as we invite heaven to come be part of this, as we want to make the land of Bowling Green into more like the land of heaven, they start to merge and we get murky about it. But what we need to know is true is that this is temporary. And one day it'll all be brought back. It'll all be made whole. It'll all be made right. But for now, we have a permanent address that isn't here. We have a permanent address in another kingdom. And what's that going to be like? John, Jesus' disciple, shares his vision from God, Revelation 21. In case you forget what heaven is going to be like, he said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Persecution is temporary. The pain of upstream life is momentary. The struggle of your season will end. Jesus says, you people who have walked faithfully along the narrow path, who've held to truth 
who've lived the upstream life, you'll be blessed and you'll know true blessing and your permanent address reserves their applause. You will one day feel the fullness of it. So you may walk into the doors of heaven weary, but the arrival there is something to wait for. Tear-stained cheeks and bruised bodies, what awaits? Pastor and writer Max Lucado said it this way. He said, the same hands that stretch the heavens will touch your cheeks. The same hands that form the mountains will caress your face. The same hands that curled in agony as the Roman spike cut through will someday cup your face and brush away your tears forever. Jesus is making all things new, starting with you. Life in the kingdom is not about reformation, but transformation. The old is gone, the new has come. The old me that longed for the applause of the world now longs for the applause of heaven. That's the transformation that happens. The old me that wanted my neighbors to approve of me now wants the king of heaven to approve of me, nothing less. The old me wanted the applause of, heaven, of, of my neighbors. The new me wants the hands of the king to hold me close. No longer worried about a world that doesn't get it. I'm free to live out a life of loving sacrifice, even if people don't understand what I'm doing. Why? We live this way in hopes that just one more citizen of the world might be transformed into a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We live our lives to know Jesus and make him known is to know the fullness of the kingdom of heaven and the king, King Jesus, and to express that kingdom in such a way that others might know it too. That one more person in the mainstream kingdom might know the actual joy of living the upstream life. So today I want to invite you to pursue that upstream life again. And maybe in the sneer of a neighbor or the indifference of a culture, that you would lean in close and hear the whisper from heaven, which I would say is the whisper from home. That you might hear the whisper from your permanent address. You're doing it. You're not wrong. Keep loving Keep sacrificing. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Grace wins. Mercy triumphs. Don't give up. Because Jesus says, I'm making all things new, and I'm starting with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need uh, courage. If we're honest, we need courage and boldness. Lord, the applause of the world is easily won and yet leaves us bankrupt. So Father, we need uh, some sort of strength and bravery beyond ourselves, some boldness and courage beyond what we are naturally given that we might live out the life you've called us to. God, remind us that uh, our reward is not here, that our favor is not here, that it is in you and in your permanent place that we will find the fullness of the reward and the applause. God, that we're, we live for you, nothing less. That we live out your truth and nothing less. That we don't compromise on truth. Father, we don't live this life so that the world might think we're okay. We live this life so that you might be glorified. And then we pray for our neighbors. We pray for those who persecute. We pray for those who don't get it, that they might know your truth too. They might experience your freedom. They might experience your salvation. So Father, allow our upstream lives not to be upstream lives that simply run counter to the mainstream so that we might look different, but may we live the upstream life that we might 
win the mainstream over one at a time. Father, they might see what's different and what's beautiful and what's true, and by your Holy Spirit come to follow you as well. So Father, we lift these prayers up. Give us courage in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen.